0: Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I am Ross Furukawa. I am the publisher of the Santa Monica Daily Press, and I'm here with the editor of the Santa Monica Daily Press and now full-time podcaster, Matt Hall. What's up, Matt? Hey, how's it going? Matt went through, uh, this would be his, (laughs) I don't know, we're in the dozens now of podcasts, but we are right in the middle of this series of informing you all uh, of the school board election that's coming up here on November, closing on November 3rd. A lot of you may have already had your ballots today. Um, So this is part of our ongoing series where we're interviewing each candidate. Um, Some of these go a little long, some of these go almost an hour. So hopefully you're doing something interesting while listening to this and being the most informed person on your block. Um, Matt, today we have Esther Hickman. So tell me a little bit about Esther. Uh, So she is one of three candidates who are running in a joint
1: Anti-incumbency slate alongside Johnson and Feldman. Uh, you know they all have a similar, similar kind of reason for running and a similar motivation. Um, in particular, they talk a lot about uh, parental involvement and representation, mm-hmm. and she has a, a distinct point of view regarding the the, the incumbents and and the districts. Um, Sort of current level of responsiveness to parents and decision making. Yeah. Um, and but you you know you'll hear a lot of overlap between her and her running mates, and so I think there's definitely it makes sense. Three people who are running for the same reasons have a similar style of conversation, but yeah. they all also have very distinct points of view and have sort of different subspecialties and the things they're particularly interested in. So I think that's what makes it interesting to listen to
0: um, listen to them as a group. Sure. And, you know, as most of these folks, uh, Esther has a day job because you can't live in Santa Monica and just be on the school board, right? So she is a real estate professional. It looks like she's a broker associate um, at one of our local real estate offices. And it should be noted, she had a lot going on in this interview. I think she had some construction going on in the house and and some funny noises. So uh, don't let that distract you. Let's get into it. Matt Hall and Esther Hickman for Santa Monica Malibu School Board. All
1: right, folks, we're here with Esther Hickman, who is running for the Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District. Uh, Thank you very much for being here with us today. Why don't you take a minute now to tell folks um, who you are and why you're running for school board?
2: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Matthew. I'm a full-time self-employed working parent. I went to uh, Santa Monica Malibu Unified School District K through 12. I went to Juan Cabrillo, Malibu Park, Santa Monica High School, and graduated from UCLA with a bachelor's in music performance. I'm first generation. My mother is from Ecuador, and my father's a bricklayer, so I was served as marginalized in this district. And I have a three-year-old, and uh, she will be going to our schools, and I want to ensure that she has every opportunity that I did within this district. And I want to make sure that every child within this district has those opportunities.
1: Um, So why don't we start with, um, so there's lots of things to talk about in schools, right? One of the things we're talking about with candidates is, you know, there was a whole bucket of things people cared about pre-COVID, right? There's lots of discussions people had. We were concerned about PCBs and termite inspections and bond financing and unification and all kinds of other things. And then COVID happened and now... Most people are just asking when when are their kids going to get out of the house? Um, And so why don't you when we start with the COVID discussion for a minute, like, how do you think the district has responded to, you know, the COVID crisis? And what do you think education will look like six months from now and a year from now?
2: Well, I think it's a very, very, very difficult situation, and no doubt the district and the administration and the board have been doing the very best that they can. I've heard um, in speaking to a lot of parents that they are pleased with what the teachers are doing, and there have been improvements. Um, I think that pre-COVID accountability and transparency and community engagement lacked And I think those three problems are continuing to poison The COVID situation, and they're bleeding into the COVID situation. For example, bond money not being used to repair the classrooms. Well, what if we can't return to the classrooms sooner than later because the bond money was used to build new buildings that we didn't need, and the kids can't go back because there's no running hot water? in the middle schools and some of the elementary schools and the bathrooms aren't safe and clean and there aren't proper ventilation systems in some of the schools, um, that would be a problem. So I don't know that enough discussions or transparency has been had about what six months will look like. Um, No doubt there will not be a vaccine that will be spread. um, So I think that would obviously Limit um, safety in return. I do have a belief that nobody should return unless they actually want to return, and that includes students and teachers. So there should be an option for that. Uh, I personally had my child enrolled in the district preschool, um, but she is um, but they closed, so we have moved her to in classroom at um, the Y. I will return her back um, once in classroom reopens. And I'm very, very, very concerned, especially for the younger children uh, and Zoom. It, it's, it's just a very, very complex thing. But the solution is community engagement and servicing the needs of the students and the teachers and the parents and coming up with solutions that are actually in the best interests of our shareholders and not um, running off with personal distracting agendas
1: what i heard you say was the district's done the best it could in the in the short term Uh, you don't know what it will look like six months from now and you didn't address a year from now but that follows if you don't know six months then you know a year you're still i guess saying you're not sure and i
2: i want to say that they've done the best meaning i'm sure in their minds i'm sure within their um intentions but it's not good enough because they have, they lack in the culture of accountability and transparency and community engagement. So when you lack in a culture that is responsive and transparent and working in the best interests of your shareholders, is your best enough? And I would say probably not. Is that more clear?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, but so so let's expand on that then. So if their best, it, it, that's fine for you to say their best isn't good enough for you. Fine. So in terms of the COVID response, what would you have wanted? What more would you have wanted?
2: Earlier community engagement and responses, um, more creative solutions. For example, I heard Oh, well bond money can't be used for outdoor classroom installations because that's not a permanent structure. And to me that is a lame excuse. There are ways to incorporate both. So lack of creativity.
1: So it, it, it's so what I'm hearing there. One of the things I'm sort of trying to drill, drill down with everybody here on is is decision points and like specifics, right? So what I'm what I heard you say there is that is that there a lack of creativity in their approach to the problem solving, right? And in specific, you gave the example of bonds and outdoor classrooms, like great. Um, were there other creative ideas that you had, or you think the board should have pursued? Um, specifically in response to COVID education?
2: Um, Yes, as in expediting um, the repair of classrooms. And um, again, I don't think there's been enough community engagement and talking between the groups. I know that um, there's constant surveys. uh, So I think it's still young. And I know that um, I think it's too young to make any judgments or conclusions.
1: Gotcha. And, and, you know, and that's part of the thing with the COVID crisis, right? Is that no one really know, Like, who knows, right? <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen a year from now, six months from now. That's I think that's why parents are unsettled, right? Because right? there isn't, nobody knows. Like, you don't know when your kid's going to really get back to
2: school. Yes. And you said something interesting where you said, is there something that you have suggested? Honestly, it, there's no me. There's no me in any of this. So let's say I came up with a suggestion that nobody liked. It doesn't matter because we're here to service our shareholders. So if I can come up with some great ideas that actually make sense, great. But that's, I think, the fundamental issue is um, is that the talks need to continue and solutions that are logical and make sense need to be investigated further.
1: Sure, but and one of the things. So a lot of this is a common thing that almost every challenger says at some point, which is the 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 will of the people argument. And I get that, but the people don't vote on the dais. You do, right? And or whoever's sitting in the seat does. And there's at some point, I think people at some point people expect the folks sitting in the seat to have uh, specific policy proposals or ideas. Now the community may not agree with them, right? And that's fine. And there's a discussion. But at the end of the day you or someone else actually casts a vote. It's not a you know, this is it's a representative democratic system. It's not a popular democratic system where at some point you vote, the entire city doesn't vote. And I think that's kind of where I'm getting from with some of these questions is like when people are looking at who they're going to vote for on the school board, they are going to want to know how those people are going to vote on the specific things that matter to them. And those specific things are going to be different. Yes. Right. Some people care a great deal about splitting Malibu from Santa Monica. Some folks care a great deal about special education options, right? Some folks care a great deal about music programs. No one is everything to everybody, but that's where I'm going with a lot of these questions is helping listeners understand how the district, how specific decisions that matter to them might be different if you were in the seat versus one of, someone else, an incumbent.
2: Okay, so, um, okay, thank you.
1: And so that, I mean, at least there were other questions, right? So so aside from COVID, ca- can you give me some examples of decision points that you have seen over the last few years where you might have, or you would have decided something differently than the current school board?
2: Yes. So um, so to be clear, I do not have an education background and I have been out of the area and just came back for the sole purpose to enroll my child in this district. Um, So I am learning, so that to be fair. But I do think that um, the elimination of what I've heard and what I've understood, the elimination of the Head Start program, um, the $1.6 million that of federal funding eliminated with the hope and plan for universal preschool universal means nobody pays for it. Um, And that sort of implementation didn't really make any sense if there was no money for it in the budget. And I understand there was a budget error, um, but nobody ran after those funds and nobody um, came back and said, oops, um, oh, we didn't mean universal preschool. So that is a decision of poor planning. And um, I've seen other decisions with poor planning. Um, So uh, having a a good plan in place would be something that I would um, do differently. The other thing is the use of bond money. And I see this, uh, you know, I'm a very, my, I haven't been a, I've been an adult longer than I've been an actual parent. Uh, I feel like there has been blatant abuse of taxpayer dollars. I understand that there's been like $1 billion in the last 14 years of bond money that has been promised uh, to repair and uh, modernize our schools. And what I've seen is that there are plans to just like rebuild Samo High and the $12 million that were spent on the um, PBL school, which, you know, that's wonderful. These, you know, how lovely Um, but why haven't these older schools gotten updated hvac systems and toilets that the children can actually um, feel comfortable using and hot water so why are there like third world country conditions in some schools and then we're building new buildings in a school district that we know is declining in population so that doesn't make any sense at all and um the classroom sizes. I understand that there have been taxpayer uh, measures that have passed with the intention of reducing class sizes and it doesn't make any sense that that hasn't been implemented when that's what these measures were intended for. So I feel Um, Like these are all just abusive of taxpayer dollars and it's not serving the interests of the students and the teachers and the parents and the staff because it shows the lack of integrity and it shows that there is not a culture of accountability and transparency and community engagement. And we are supposed, you know, the school board and the top administration, they are public servants. And it seems to me like that culture is lost, but I could be old fashioned.
1: And so so uh, a couple of things there. When, when you mentioned the PBL school for folks who don't No, um, that is, it's referred to, I think it's called the Obama Center, I think is its name. And it's basically, it's um, a different style of education. And it's a campus that was put within an existing campus over at what was slash is Olympic High School. Um, And it's for for people who may know the district, the SMASH model, it was expanding the SMASH model up through high school level education. It's a new project. Last year it was its first year. Uh, they expected a hundred kids enrolled, and they had forty-eight, I think, at the end of the year. Um, so, just for folks who don't know, that's that's what you were referring to there, is when you said, "Yeah, that's PBL, Project Based right. Learning." Um, is it is it safe to say that you're that you wouldn't have pursued that campus and that project?
2: I don't, you know, when people are on the board. Um, you know, we, like you said, they are elected. Um, and I think it would be very, very arrogant of me to say, I wasn't there, so it would be very arrogant for me to say that um, I wouldn't have made that decision. However, um, it seems to me now that that program is at risk because of irresponsible decisions. So I don't know what I would have done Um, And I know a lot of SMASH parents who, and I know children that are in that program, and they are happy. But I think the fundamental problem is not um, that uh, SMASH was extended through high school. The fundamental problem is now all of our programs are at risk because of financial decisions that have been made and again the lack of transparency and accountability and community engagement in the culture of the school board and top administration.
1: So when you say all of our programs are at risk why are all of our programs at risk? Because there's not enough money coming in? Um,
2: There is not a revenue problem in this district. Uh, We have an ample operating fund and we have um, obviously a, a just glut of bond money to spend. Um, When I say it's at risk, when teachers are on the chopping block and um, there are teacher layoffs, that means larger classrooms. And that means that student and teacher relationships and connections are at risk. And that means our superior educational outcomes are at risk. And us as a body, of Santa Monica and Malibu, um, you know. Again, I think I have very old-fashioned community value beliefs. Um, so when I say everything's at risk, I believe that um, that you know every aspect and child within our district and the marginalized to the top, the most gifted and talented, and everybody in between should be thriving and everybody should be proud to be a part of this district. And if you're not sending your kids, um, when I say everybody's at risk also is there has been a huge exodus of students that have been leaving the districts, their parents have been pulling them out and to private and charter and homeschooling. And every single one of the parents that I've spoken to, not one of them has received one email or phone call from the administration saying, oh, you're leaving. All they get is, OK, please sign this piece of paper. No follow up. Like, why, do, why are you leaving? No questions asked. Gone. And so to me, everything is at risk when there is not even an administration that cares um, that people are not satisfied and not getting what they need out of one of the richest districts in Los Angeles.
1: So there's a couple of things there that I think are interconnected. So let's let start with this, this defining terms. So you mentioned a declining district. Do you know how much the district is declining by? I
2: don't know the statistics. I um, recently learned that um, kindergarten enrollment is down 20% this year. Obviously, a lot of this has to do with COVID. Um, I don't have statistics, and and I know somebody's looking into getting those statistics of how many kids have actually left the district who are still living in the district. Um, It would be interesting if anybody could ever find those numbers. I know that people are blaming um, the people are living, leaving um, the district because it's unaffordable to live here. Yet, I would say, I guess, I mean, over half of the parents that I know who live in Santa Monica and Malibu, and again, I don't have a massive network here, but the people I know, I would say over half of them take them to private or charter.
1: And so, you know, so yes, the 20% decline, uh, you can, whether or not we give the district a pass for that, like that's a COVID number, right? Like post COVID, there's a, right. But there has been a decline in enrollment year on year I think that number is roughly five ish, five, six percent in declining enrollment year on year. And there's a couple of things I want to get to on that. Uh, the first item is earlier in this conversation, you referenced the idea the, um, that we have declining enrollment. So, why do we need to build new buildings? But you also referenced not losing teachers and class size. And how do you balance the idea that we should be retaining teachers? if the number of students is declining? Like, I guess another way to rephrase that is, should the district right-size? Are there a certain number of teacher layoffs that are appropriate if the district is losing
2: students? So um, my understanding, and Matthew, I really appreciate you keeping me on track because I am doing a little bit of an emotional, overly concerned, angry parent um, rant, so thank you for keeping me focused. <laughs> um, so... The classroom sizes, as I understand, are too large. So, um, so now with so now with teachers leaving, these classroom sizes are getting larger. So what is the ideal classroom ratio? 20 to 1, 24 to 1, Definitely 35 to 1 is too large. So I don't have, I'm not on the board. There's a lot of information that is not accessible to people like me. And I've not been in the district following what's been happening over the last 15 years. So I don't know the exact answer to that. But I do know that losing teachers right now during COVID has made classrooms larger and has um, degraded. The results that we can get. So, um, but those exact numbers and that exact lineup, I think there needs to be an agreement of what through community engagement of what class size is acceptable, K through five, six through eight, or whatever the breakdowns are. Again, I'm not a educational. I have no educational background. I'm not a child development uh, person. But um, once that decision is made, we need to stick to it and commit to smaller classrooms so that students can have these connections and teachers can flag um, children that need more support and the administration can follow through and get every child service the way that um, that education that works actually does, if that makes sense.
1: Uh, yeah. So, so, so summarize your point here before I move on to the next question. Uh, you're, you you are starting from a premise that class size is is already too large. If the district is declining in enroll in enrollment, and there's an opportunity there to improve that ratio by simply retaining the number of teachers. It would reduce the kids in the classroom, and that if if the cuts are maintaining the current ratio and the current ratio is too high, then that's a self sustaining problem, right? Like that seems like your you so, your approach thank there.
2: you so much for articulating that for me i really lack in articulation i was not prepared to be running um for it, it was a panic move i learned that there were problems and i hope that they'll be resolved by the time my child is back is in kindergarten
1: so so do you know how many teachers the district lost in the last cycle
2: You know, I have heard so many numbers um, back and forth, and I'm trying to get fact checking. But I understand that the final count after negotiations was negotiations was 12. You probably know this better than I do.
1: Well, no, I mean it's an interesting point of discussion because there's a there's the the incumbents are will say that they essentially didn't they uh, the incumbents will say that when it came to layoffs they didn't they either laid off zero or one teachers when it comes to the classification of a teacher like i think that's roughly their number and that a bunch of teachers were pink slipped but they were all essentially retained from the pink slip process at the end of the year however there were retirements and there were people who left outside of the pink slip process um and so you know i'm just always curious to know what what measurement people use to discuss that um and so that's why I'm just, just curious as to what, what your take on that number is. So,
2: I, um, so I'd like to make a comment. Um, so did they agree that they let go of classified staff?
1: So, so again, this is the discussion points. Is the, yeah, so there's different – and I'm trying not to – one of the things I'm trying to do in this podcast is not expressly, like, throw people under the bus for things they've said, yes. right? It's, it's a discussion. Yes. But in broad, broadly speaking, yes, I believe the incumbents – acknowledge that there were reductions in staffing both from what we would consider certified teachers and from non-teaching positions, right? Like staff that aren't necessarily the teacher in front of the classroom. Okay.
2: So I Uh. would like to comment to that. Yes, go ahead. If the teacher support, so when I think of smaller class sizes, I don't just think there should be that teacher to child ratio. I also consider that classified staff and teacher support staff that is an extension of that teacher child relationship. Like, I remember profound um, moments with classified staff in my learning. So when I say teachers, I'm just I'm talking about the infrastructure of support so that children's education is supported by an actual educator. So if they say, well, it wasn't really technically a teacher, it doesn't matter in the point of this discussion. And with administration, let's say they just said, oh, it was just like, you know, um, staffers or whatever. This is kind of goes back to the point that I understand they spent like $75,000 for one third party survey that went out for COVID. Um, To me, it is unacceptable that taxpayers are paying administrative money to this district and the staff isn't even trained up enough to send out a survey. But they're laying people off. So that's a little confusing to me and I really I really would love to understand all the backstories to all of these things. And again, if they had transparency and community engagement there would not be so much confusion around these issues.
1: Gotcha. And and I'm you know, these are interesting topics, but I do want to get back to one thing you said earlier that I wanted to explore a little bit, which was the idea that uh, folks in the district are taking their kids out of a wealthy, well-endowed district and sending them to, to other kinds of education somewhere else, an interdistrict transfer, private school, homeschool, whatever. What do you – and, and you, you express that that's something that shouldn't happen, right? In a district this wealthy, it, we should have enough resources to accommodate and appeal to everybody. So what is it that you think those parents are – uh, missing locally when they take their kids and send them to a private school or homeschool.
2: Well, they do inherently get smaller class sizes. Again, I don't. I'm not an authority. I don't have a background, but my understanding is that class size is actually something that can improve educational outcomes. So it's wonderful that they're getting smaller class sizes when they're pulled out to private schools or charter or homeschooling. Um, and then the other thing is that we always hear about public schools catering to the marginalized or to the most gifted, or we're hearing that they're just playing to one um, type of learner. Like, for example, I was a very kinesthetic learner. I've heard that um, that children who are kinesthetic learners no longer have a place um, in our district. There There isn't curriculums to uh, support such learners. I find that very difficult to understand. So, um, so if a child doesn't fit the mold the one size fits all in this district, then um, the parents do have the wealth and the resources to pull them out. And if they don't have the wealth or resources to send them the private, there are charters and uh, magnet schools, and there are LA City Services with elementary schools that will take them in. Did I answer the question? Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it sounds like your uh, the first point there was class size, and the second point was maybe specialized learning if they, you know, if they felt their child needed that. Yes. It, it, so it, it so it doesn't it didn't you didn't reference it doesn't sound like you were referencing sort of necessarily enrichment activities like the ability to take mandarin as a class or or a swim team or a particular kind of educational uh, opportunity. It sounded like that what you were describing were, were a little bit more basic and systemic reasons why people might choose to leave the
2: district. Yes, that's true. However, I understand with the way that they are scheduling that it will be harder and harder Uh, for your regular child to take these extracurricular we used to call them extracurricular I don't know what they're called now Um, but I understand that it's going to be more and more difficult if you don't have a parent who can do early drop-offs and so I don't understand the nuances to that but I do understand that that is um, at risk right now
1: Gotcha Um, So uh, just going back to your background for a minute Did you grow up in Malibu?
2: I did. I grew up on the north side of Malibu, up a canyon.
1: Gotcha. And uh, you, you currently live in Santa Monica? I
2: do. I live in the Pico neighborhood.
1: Gotcha. I just was curious because, you know, it's an interesting mix of things to go f- through the, Ma- the Malibu side of the education system and then, you know, end up residing on the Santa Monica side. Yes. So what was your educational experience like in Malibu? Like how did growing up, how did you view the district as much as a kid does, right? I don't know if kids even care that they're in a district, right? It's not there, (laughs) not necessarily their front of mind, but looking back on it, what was that educational experience like for you in Malibu? And where do you fall fall on the discussion and debate around Malibu wanting to be its own district?
2: Well, I... I don't mean to be nostalgic and I know that the world has changed. So I attended Malibu um 78 to 87 and Santa Monica High School 87 to 91. So I realized the world was different. Um so I had an incredible experience. I can't remember one grade where I didn't have a relationship with a teacher. And um and I know that um so as a Malibu child, you could choose to go to, um, to Las Virgines. So, so I was, I lived close enough to the Las Virgines schools, which would have been a Gura high school or to go to Santa Monica high school. And, um, and so my mother's from Ecuador and she said, it would be very good for me to go to Santa Monica high school, even though would, you know, I'd have to get up at six 30 and get best in every morning. Um, because um, she wanted me to be in, in more diversity, because um, at that time, aguru was very homogenized. So again, Santa Monica High School, I, I just cannot remember. I remember all of my teachers, and I remember having um, intervention. I, I was a very unsupervised child, and I remember just constantly constantly people putting me back on track I mean it was very much um I would say I had a superior education I mean so much opportunity I didn't probably have the discipline or the maturity or intelligence or family support to have taken advantage all of these opportunities but I would say I had a superior education I would say that most of my classmates would agree of that era and um so it was nice. <laughs> so I hope that my child can have such an experience.
1: Gotcha. And so, so then the second part of that question is, where do you fall on the debate around Malibu wanting to separate? Yeah,
2: honestly, again, full, for full circle, just who I am. I'm not a controlling person, and nobody should do what they don't want to do. Um, so if Malibu wants unification, I would fully fully support it. It makes me sad that such a marriage wouldn't work out. And while the districts are not separated, I will recognize Malibu as needing whatever support they need from our district and they will never be the abandoned, you know, stepchild. So, um, that, that's my feeling is support Malibu in the district or out of the district. Malibu needs to be supported. They've always, um, Yeah, I don't want to go back into the history of the way things were, um, but Malibu has talent, and um, we need to support that talent of resources in or out of the district.
1: And so, you know, this point has been debated and discussed a lot. The typical opposition to Malibu separating is a financial argument. Well, there's two arguments. There's finances that says... Santa Monica students would suffer undue harm because there'd be a reduction not in their actual per se income, but in the delta between what they would have received had the district remained the same or what they will receive singly, right? So there's an economic argument for not separating. And there's a second line of argumentation that, that basically says if Malibu left, it would be a district all of white people and that that's not good, that there's a diversity argument That necessitates the districts remaining joined so that you don't end up with a a, by default segregated education system Uh, are either of those convincing arguments to you or not
2: okay so they are both not convincing arguments to me the financial argument is a practical matter and it can be worked out so Financially, if Malibu wants to pursue unification, I think we should support them. Financially, if they want to stay in the district or as long as they are in the district, they should be supported financially, and we need to figure out a way to do so. So um, that is, um, I see the financial piece is practical. And then um, the demographic piece. I, I don't know how this is going to be perceived, but um, when I was growing up in Malibu, it was not as diverse as Santa Monica High School, but there was diversity, and I still, um, and recently because of the school board run, I actually did call up all of my friends who grew up in Malibu who are Black and um, and Latin. and. Um, and I, again, like my mother was indigenous, so um, she was always perceived as the housekeeper, the nanny, not my mother. And um, and so we recognized that it was a, a racial, um, you know, racism <laughs> is very present in our society, period, in Malibu and in Santa Monica. And I already remember comments in as early as, Uh, kindergarten around um, race and the housekeepers, children versus, you know, everybody else. But I do have to say that our experience is that um, in the diversity of Santa Monica, there was actually more, um, you know, there was a different type of intolerance. Um, So I don't think that statistical numbers of diversity, like, oh, we need more black Children here. We need more Latin people here. Um, those aren't uh, those. Those don't address um, the systemic racism in our country. And I and I'm very happy to learn about the new curriculums that are going to be educating people more. But I think we need to um, to reintroduce basic community building to our children, which means um, finding common ground. And um, sharing in activities uh, that where that common ground is found, like music. Music is a wonderful place where everybody can sing in one voice.
1: Gotcha. Uh, so, you know, I know we're, we're over time a little bit, but I, I want to make sure that everyone gets an opportunity here. Um, is there a particular topic or subject that you wanted to talk about that you haven't had the opportunity to do so yet?
2: no i just think in short that if i were elected i would prioritize as um and and it's an ongoing priority is a culture of accountability and transparency and community engagement um because and also to prioritize a culture where the board and the administration see themselves and act as true public servants above all else. And they should be thinking of all of their shareholders, which includes the students, the teachers, the parents, the administration, and taxpayers, because all parties have been abused.
1: Gotcha. And and, um, as I said, I know, you know, time's ticking, and you budget half hour for these things, they go a little bit long. But you mentioned these things a couple times, and I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to fully expand on those ideas because I do think they're they're the decision points. Like when you say transparency and community engagement, is there, do you want to give us a couple of quick examples of places where there was a decision made that you think was not transparent? Uh,
2: I don't under, I, I understand that there are a lot of meetings behind closed doors. So um, just the, Alone with the student, I mean, with the teacher layoffs, that you said there's a lot of um, information going around and it's not all consistent. That shouldn't be happening. Certainly, um, the bond, the, the way the bond money's been spent, the fact that, that they are looking to destroy the history building at Samohai and level the actual hill, and there's been no public hearing about around this, and that decision's gonna be made before. Um, or, or that's being prioritized over updating HVAC systems, air quality, and running hot water is um, is a major concern.
1: Gotcha. Um, okay, cool. So uh, the other thing that I want everyone to get a chance to do here is sort of make their closing pitch if you want to. Um, you know, do you want to? You know, vote faster. Like, right? what's your pitch?
2: I I think that the pitch is really um, that what i just said um to just say it again which is um is that community engagement building community having a board and administration that is held accountable and takes accountability and is transparent and is a public servant above all else and that is what i'd be looking to do and to be standing for parents and teachers and students and taxpayers and make sure that that um we're making the right decisions on behalf of the district. self
0: Thanks for listening to the Santa Monica Politics Podcast, powered by the Santa Monica Daily Press. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the Santa Monica Politics Podcast provided by The Brig Band. The Brig Band is an L.A. jam band that's been playing on the West Side since 2002. Their regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder, to The Doors, Fishbone, and Steely Dan. If you want to find out where they're playing next, go to thebrigband.com.